get to know people better and just have time to, to visit really has. You all are a blessing. We're very blessed to have each other too. So anyway, as Kelly said, my name is Lois House and I'm very excited that um, I got to prepare a lesson from Trusting God for you all. So I'm actually focusing on two chapters of Trusting God, which is chapter six, God's power over nature, and chapter seven, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And the good thing is, is that this book is so good, and once you all really get into it, you will look forward to studying the rest of it. And there's always, I'm sure, more to come, right, Kelly? <laughs> all right. Um, before I get into the specifics of the book, I thought it was helpful to look at some definitions. Learning means to gain knowledge or understanding of or skill in by study, instruction, or experience. Thus, by learning, we will actively grow in our trust of God. And that's the whole point of this weekend. The definition of trust is to rely on the character, which we've talked about, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. In our case, it is God we will be learning to trust. Trust also means to place confidence in, to place our hope in, we've heard about hope a few times this weekend, or to expect with confidence. Trust is to commit our place in one's care, our keeping, to believe, or to do something without fear or misgiving. Mm -hmm. Lastly, trust is, is to rely on the truthfulness or accuracy of, in our case, God. So we will grow in our trust of God by studying God's word, receiving instruction from those who trust God, and by experiences in our lives which give us opportunity to trust God. So in order to trust God, we must come to know him through his word, his character, his ability, his strength, and that he is the truth. When we know him, we can trust him. It's really hard to trust someone if we really don't know them. So that is such an important point. It's God's word where we really learn about him and learn to trust him. Okay, I wanted to start out with an example of someone who we all know who trusted God throughout his life. And that person is Abraham. Um, despite a number of setbacks, I can readily see through the scriptures that Abraham continued to learn to trust God. It's a process. It was a process for Abraham. It's a process for us. So, interestingly, we hear about Abraham from Acts 7, verses 2 to 3, where God called Abraham from Mesopotamia, or Ur, 
to leave his country and its people to go to the land God would show him. Now, I found that interesting because, you know, most of us here are Missourians. And what do we want? Show me. We want to be shown. So I was just very impressed that I don't think Abraham knew a whole lot about where he was going. So anyway, Genesis 11 tells us Terah, Abram's father, set out from Ur to go to Cana with Abram, Lot, and Sarah. But they stopped short in Haran. If you remember your maps, it was only about halfway to Canaan. It was, it's like an arch they had to go up and down. And they kind of started up, stopped up here instead of going on down. We aren't sure why they stopped in Haran. It seemed to me it would have taken a lot of trust in God for Abram to leave the home that he knew so much about and to go to a place he knows, knew so little about. So right there um, shows that Abram trusted God. However, they did not leave Canaan, leave for Canaan until after Abram's father, Terah, died. And once again, Abram heard God's call to leave his country, his people, in his father's household and go to the land God would, would show him. This time, God's call included promises to Abram to make him into a great nation, to make his name great, to bless him, and that all people would be blessed through him. Abram left at the age of 75 and took Lot and his wife Sarai, along with many other people they had acquired. So they left for Canaan. Well, he did arrive in Canaan, and there built altars to God. There God promised Abram that he would give this land to his offspring. Abram moved further south toward the Negev when a severe famine came upon the land, so he set out for Egypt. Out of fear, and remember in one of our definitions uh, earlier about trust was to do something without fear or misgiving. Okay, so out of fear, um, Abram told the Egyptians that Sarai was his sister, which was a partial truth because she was a half-sister, but uh, did not tell him that she was actually his wife. This shows that Abram wasn't trusting God to protect him from the harm, so he lied to Pharaoh. Ultimately, God intervened, protected Sarai, and sent Abram away with more wealth in livestock, silver, and gold. There's no record in the Bible that Abram asked God if he should go to Egypt, yet God did protect and bless Abram. Well, with all this wealth of livestock, Lot and Abram's herdsmen started arguing over the grazing land. Abram decided he and Lot should part company, and he gave Lot his choice of which direction he would like to go. So even though Abram was the elder, he let Lot choose. And so I can see where Abram was trusting God with this decision as Lot ultimately chose the better water land. And so Lot left, and after that, God spoke to Abram 
and promised once again all the land he could see would be his offsprings forever. So that even included the direction that Lot went. God also promised his offspring would be as numerous as the dust of the land and told him to walk through the length and breadth of the land. Abram obeyed and moved his tents and once again built an altar to God. Abram continued to build his trust in the Lord. Later on, Abram got involved in a war with a group of kings because they had captured Lot and carried him off into another country. Well, Abram is victorious and returned Lot, his possessions, and the other people that were captured with Lot back to their homes. And God delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. God tells Abram, I am your shield and your very great reward. As Abram learns of God's character, his trust in him continues to grow. Yet, there is a problem. Abram still had no children, for all his descendants to inherit all this land. So, but finally God told Abram he would have a son coming from his own body because he was trying to think of ways that God might keep this promise. Uh, because God had promised he would have as many offspring as the stars in the heaven. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Trust in God is definitely demonstrate, demonstrated through his belief. Well, eventually, Sarai decided to step in to help God, uh, to help God keep his promise of a child. So she brought Hagar, a maidservant from Egypt that had probably been brought from their trek down to Egypt, to Abraham, Abram actually, and he consented to Sarai's plan. Hagar became another wife to Abram and bore a child named Ishmael. Well, makes you wonder, was polygamy really in God's plan there for Abram? And how about all the family jealousy and turmoil that was started because of Sarai's and then Abram's decision to help God with his promise for descendants? Well, so not so much trust in that, that moment, uh, but God confirmed his covenant with Abram despite that. God again told Abram he would be the father of many nations and kings would come from him. He told him his covenant would be an everlasting covenant for generations to come and the land would be an everlasting possession to him and his descendants. God promised to be their God. Abram's name would now be changed to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. God became more specific and told Abraham the promised son would be born from Sarah within the year. In order to complete this covenant, God asked Abraham and every male in his household to be circumcised. Well, that very day, Abraham circumcised himself and his household. So, once again, obedience and trust in God. And as an 
Obstetrical nurse and nursery nurse for many years, I've seen many babies circumcised. And it's not such a pleasant experience for them, trust me. So I can't imagine what it was like for these adult men, 90-year-old men, and all the, the men in their, his household. But they trusted God and obeyed him. So anyway, the story goes on. Abraham moved to Gerar near a king named Abimelech. Abraham, once again, just like in Egypt, became fearful for his life and lied to the king, telling him Sarah was his sister. The king took Sarah, but God once again intervened to protect her and sent her back to Abraham unviolated. And remember, Sarah was going to be having this baby within a year, and God protected uh, Sarah. It seems Abraham forgot God's promises to him and his future descendants. Yet, before we criticize Abraham, how often do we become fearful for getting God's promises to us? I mean, that's a very real thing that happens to all of us. Finally, after 24 years, since Abraham first went to Canaan, Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah in God's perfect timing. It certainly wasn't Abraham's nor Sarah's timing. Abraham was 100 years old while Sarah was 90. Trusting God was not easy in those 24 years, and yet God did keep his promise, even though it seemed impossible. That builds trust. God, God does accomplish what he promises, even when it seems impossible. Well, sometime later, God tested Abraham to see if he truly trusted him. God told Abraham to go sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham, in fact, proved he trusted God when he immediately, the next day, got up to obey God. He went to slay his promised son, Isaac. And in the midst of him starting to slay him, he was stopped by an angel of the Lord. And God knew that Abraham trusted him. God then provided a ram to sacrifice instead of Isaac. And that, of course, points to the future substitute God made for us all. God killed his own son on the cross for us, so we don't receive the punishment for our sins. Well, Sarah died when she was 127 years old. Abraham needed to bury Sarah, yet he owned no land despite the promises that he would, him and his descendants would own this land. So he had wandered from place to place in the land of Canaan. And Abraham described himself as an alien and stranger in this promised land. Even though God had promised him and his descendants all the land he could see in Canaan, he had none. He graciously bought land from the local Hittites, proving he trusted God's promise, even though he had not yet seen that promise. Hebrews 11.13 says, Abraham was living by faith when he died. He had not received all the things promised by God, but saw them 
and welcomed them from a distance. In the story of Abraham, we can readily see how Abraham grew in his trust of God. Despite periodic failings, Abraham grew in his knowledge and obedience of God throughout his life. God desires the same trust from us. It's easy to trust God when our lives are going our way, but what happens when adversity comes? Just like Abraham, God often places obstacles or difficulties in our lives to test us and grow us in our faith. God's plan for those who know him is to grow us in our knowledge and trust of him. From chapter 1 in trusting God, there are three truths we must believe. And I know you've heard these, but this is a really important concept to get. Those truths are like a three-legged stool. They need each other to stand. Without one, they don't, they don't stand. A two-legged stool will not be of any value. God is completely sovereign. Number two, he's infinite in wisdom. And three, he's perfect in love. Okay, those are the three stools that we, legs of the stool that we have to put together. When we believe these three truths, we will come to trust God. Our beliefs must be established by the Bible, the truth of scripture, and definitely not necessarily our feelings. There are times especially tough times in our lives where we can get off track and doubt God's sovereignty, wisdom, and love. Okay, and I know many of you have heard my testimony, um, but I'm going to recap a little of just a short portion of it because uh, it really relates to trusting God. Okay, and it, that was just a huge test in my life for me. And by the way, that's why it's called a testimony test, you know. Yeah. So almost 22 years ago, my daughter Rachel was killed in an automobile accident on I-70 on her way home from work, uh, which is about 18 and a half years ago. Another car lost control and hit the side of her car, pushing her car into the, the concrete barrier that separates the east and westbound uh, sides of I-70. Her car came to rest on a large highway sign that tells you when to exit next, and it killed her instantly. It, it actually broke her neck. Um, she had been married for one month to the day, and I couldn't have been asked for a more wonderful daughter. She was my eldest, so as you probably know from your oldest, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about mothering, and uh, you just, God teaches a lot through your, through your children. We were very close, and we talked about so many things. She was a wonderful example of a young woman who had committed her life to following Jesus. When she was killed, my life literally fell apart. My heart was broken. We readily accept the good that comes from God's sovereignty, but often question when what we see is bad. And uh, this actually happened to me, but have you ever heard, or maybe even said yourself, when talking about someone that was in an automobile accident, 
Praise the Lord. The person in the vehicle was saved, was unharmed. God protected them. Have you ever heard that or thought that yourself? Well, months after my daughter was killed, I actually heard that at a Bible study. Um, so my question in my head directly went to so if the outcome was bad, if the person was killed, uh, was God really present with her? Um, we don't like to think, you know, that God was in control of the bad event in our life, but he is. Um, but that really made me really stop and think that question through, because that really is our tendency. It's, it's easy to say God is in control and he's sovereign when things are good, when things fall apart. It's harder to say. But as we're learning, nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. He is an all-powerful, wise, loving God who controls both the good and the bad. And that became my test. I had to learn to trust God even in my grief. Trusting God did not come from my feelings because my feelings were totally pushing me the opposite way. But it came from my will based on my belief that had to be based on God's truth. Okay. Fortunately, three months after Rachel was killed, I started Bible Study Fellowship for the first time. And most of you are probably familiar with it, but it's a, it's a deep word-for-word -word study of the Bible. And that year, that was the first year I had been actually invited to go to this study, uh, like in April, and my daughter was killed in June. And so I think God sovereignly planned for me to be in his word in that study. Um, we were studying the book of John, and I needed God's word to answer all the questions swirling in my head because it just makes you really, really rethink everything you think you know. <laughs> um, I knew the truth of God's sovereignty, that everything was under his control. Yet, I thought, you know, one second faster or slower would have kept her safe. I mean, one second, God, that's not that big of a deal to control. One second. Um, but that wasn't the case. Um, and so that brought another part of that stool uh, that I talked about earlier. Um, that didn't feel very loving to me. You know, God could have protected her. He chose not to. So that made me question, is God really a loving God? Um, why would God allow my wonderful daughter, who was such a blessing to me, to be killed? She was just starting her life with her husband and already looking forward to a family. She would have been an awesome mother filled with kindness and love. She was just a wonderful, like I said, godly young lady. I was nowhere close to that when I was her age. Um, that just didn't make sense to me. And yet, the Bible clearly pointed to God's love for me and for her. It always goes back to the cross. God loves me and her so much. He sent a son who 
willingly died on the cross for my sin so I can be saved from an eternity of hell. That kind of love is really hard to dispute. My thinking had to transition from worldly thinking to eternal thinking. So what about God's wisdom for her and for me? I know she would have followed Jesus and loved people well. Now she's already in heaven. I had to ask myself, is that not our true home? It's not that I don't miss her here and now, but heaven is a perfect place without sin in, in the very presence of God himself. So what about me? Didn't God know how difficult it would be to live my life without my daughter? Is that wise to separate a mother and her daughter? That's where I had to submit to an all-knowing God who knows everything. He sees the big picture. He sees everything, the past, present, and future. You know, one thing I've always loved is flying. I think it really gives you a different perspective. You take off in that airplane you look down on those little toy cars and houses and everything and I think you know that really is God's perspective and and flying just gives me that peace because it really reminds me of God just looking at us and saying you think it's a big deal I got to handle and then even the the picture of the world you know the the pictures we got when the astronauts were on the moon taking pictures back up the earth it's such a peaceful place this ball that is just floating in space that God controls exactly where it is. And then I think of him in the universe. You see pictures of the universe, the beauty of the universe that he created. And he's just looking at all that and he has it. He has it all under control. Even when your life feels like it's not. Well, Job had the same experience of not understanding his suffering, and God did not explain it to him, but helped Job understand God as the standard of wisdom. Our response must be to submit and rest in his care. Thus, I must embrace God's choice for me and my daughter. I trust that God is using my life for my good and his glory. So be it. In my weakness, he is strong. That's one of my favorite verses. Um, that is God's promise to me. He is my strength every single day and to this day. Okay, now let's tra transition to a brief summary of chapter 4, which is God's sovereignty over people. It amazes me that God works in the hearts of both Christians and non-Christians to move their hearts. I just love that. I, I love what he talks about. So I'm going to say it again. It, God works in the hearts of both Christians and non-Christians to move their hearts within their own will or free choice to think and act exactly as God planned for them to do. This fulfills both the sovereignty of God and the free choices made by man. And I admit that's just a hard thing to understand, but it's true. Okay, and we saw in chapter 5 that God is sovereign over nations. God allows rulers to act against his revealed will, revealed will, 
but never beyond his sovereign will. Nations are merely instruments for God to accomplish his will. This is certainly good news amidst the turmoil we are currently dealing with in our nation. I thought, how appropriate. So, Okay, and then um, we turn to God's sovereignty over nature in chapter, seven, chapter 6. The Bible repeatedly says God controls the weather. Okay, ladies, see the beautiful snow? It's okay. Uh, and uh, there's scripture. Job 37, verses 3, 6, 10 to 13 says, okay, listen. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heaven and sends it to the ends of the earth. He says to the snow, fall on the earth and to the rain shower. Be a mighty downpour. The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, at his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. So once again, it's easy for us to think of God when we like what's going on outside. Okay? But he's in control of it all. We are all affected by the weather. This includes rain, which can be desired in a drought or a calamity in a flood. God established physical laws to govern the forces of nature, but those laws operate according to God's sovereign will. God controls both destructive and productive forces of nature on a continuous moment-by-moment -moment basis. Nothing is left to chance. So question for you, do you ever complain about the weather? <laughs> is anybody guilty? <laughs> If so, you are actually complaining and sinning against God. Despite the tornado, drought, or hurricane, most weather and its effects are favorable. Weather is expression of God's provision for his creation. We need to stop complaining and give thanks for it. What about God's sovereignty in natural disasters? This might include earthquakes, tsunamis, or volcanoes. In Isaiah 45, 7, the scripture reads, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. God accepts the responsibility for disasters. Another area in which we struggle to trust God is our illnesses and physical afflictions. We have certainly been exposed to many struggles with COVID in the past year. COVID has caused many concerns in many different ways. In John 9, verses 2 to 3, Jesus responds to his disciples' question of why a blind man was born blind, and Jesus replied, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. God was in control of that man's blindness. 
That brings us to the problem of pain and suffering, which ultimately started when sin entered the perfect world in the Garden of Eden. We live in a broken and sinful world, yet God rules over sin and suffering. Childlessness is another common error we struggle to trust God in. Yet in 1 Samuel 1.5, the Bible says, God closed Hannah's womb, but later opened it and she conceived and gave birth to Samuel. Lamentations 3.31-33 says, For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. God always has a purpose for the grief he brings or allows into our lives. God never wastes pain. He always uses it to accomplish his purpose for his good glory and our good. Yep. Okay, that's supposed to start sinking in, okay? <laughs> we must be willing to accept this pain from him. Ask him what he wants us to learn from him in the difficulty. That doesn't mean we can't pray for the desires of our hearts, say for healing, but we must do it with an attitude of acceptance of his will. We may not understand what God is doing, but we must trust him in it. Calligraphy I have on my living room wall says, when you can't see God's hand, trust his heart. And that is such a good reminder for me. Our trust in God must be based on what he has told us about himself and his word. Okay, moving on to chapter 7 of Trusting God combines God's sovereignty with our responsibility. One of those responsibilities includes prayer. God does have sovereign control of all things, yet the Bible tells us to pray. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. God's sovereignty is a reason and encouragement to pray because he is able to answer our prayers. If he wasn't sovereign, it would be wishes at best. So, God's sovereignty, wisdom, and love are the foundation of our trust in God, and prayer is the expression of that trust. Let me read that again. God's sovereignty, wisdom, and love are the foundation of our trust in God, which is the three-legged stool, and prayer is the expression of that trust. We must depend on God to act on our behalf. We must also act prudently. Prudence means to use all legitimate biblical means to avoid harm to ourselves, our others, and to bring about what we believe to be the right course of events. A biblical example of this is shown in the life of David. David had been anointed to succeed Saul as king of Israel, yet Saul was trying to kill David. David acted prudently to avoid Saul's actions to kill him, despite God's promise to make him a king. So, he didn't test God. He acted prudently. 
Unfortunately, we generally do not know God's specific sovereign purpose for us, but God wants us to pray for wisdom, to understand our circumstances, and to use what means he has given us. God also tells us to seek wise and godly counsel. Okay? We must depend upon God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and to depend on him to enable us to do what we must do for ourselves. Now that's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. We must depend upon God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and to depend on him to enable us to do what we must do for ourselves. An example of this is a farmer who plants using his knowledge and strength, which comes from God, to plow, plant, fertilize, and cultivate properly. Then the farmer depends on God to control nature so his crop will grow. Thus, we are totally dependent upon God, yet totally responsible to use appropriate means for the circumstance at hand. So the farmer just didn't sit there and say, okay, God, make me a crop. He did his work that God had allowed him the knowledge and skill to do. And then God brought the rain and the sun and crops grew. Okay, our duty is the revealed will of God in the Bible. While we must trust the sovereign will of God as he works in the ordinary circumstances of our lives for our good and his glory. So hopefully you're starting to see the connection there. Okay, for our good, our his glory, and our good, either way. When we fail to act responsibly and prudently, God continues to be sovereign. God's sovereign plan even includes our failures in sin. I love that. So even we fail in sin, his plan includes those. God generally works through ordinary events and the voluntary actions of people. He can use whatever means he desires to accomplish his will. So, I thought of an example of prudence in my life that occurred just this past November. My husband and I, well, actually, let me and remember the definition of prudence. Let me just read that again, if I can find it here real quick. Prudence means, so while I give you this example, be thinking about prudence. Prudence means to use all legitimate biblical means to avoid harm to ourselves or others and to bring about what we believe to be the right course of events. Okay, so get that in your brain as I go through this. Okay, my husband and I were sitting around the table with my sister, her husband, and my brother. In front of our eyes, my brother-in-law collapsed. We were just sitting there, he just started falling over. Since I'm a retired nurse, I immediately jumped up, pulled my brother-in-law out of his chair, and immediately told my sister and brother to call 911. I knew he didn't look good. Um, I assist, assessed my brother-in-law's condition according to CPR standards. He was not breathing, and his carotid artery was not pulsating. I told my husband who was squatting next to him and we had both been opening, revealing his chest while all this was going on. And uh, he had been trained as an EMT to start chest compressions. 
while I managed his airway and continued assessing his condition. So, um, we continued CPR for eight to 10 minutes until the ambulance arrived and took over the resuscitation. The paramedics worked on my brother-in-law for probably 15 minutes or so, in which they shocked his heart, I think three times, intubated him, injected epinephrine into his bone marrow, and eventually, while they were continuing CPR, they took him to the ambulance. The ambulance sat there for another 10 or 15 minutes, and I knew that they were fighting for his life. So I gathered my family around together and we started to pray. And I prayed that the Lord would save his life. But yet I did recognize that it was God's will. Um, but I told God what, what we wanted. Um, I knew his life was in the balance. And he was on his way to eternity unless God intervened. But I didn't stand back and say, okay, God, save him. I know you really don't want him yet. <laughs> I did what God had taught me in previous years to do CPR and my husband. Um, and anyway, after 10 or 15 minutes, the ambulance left for the hospital and we got in our car and followed. We put, were put in the waiting room at the emergency room, waiting to hear uh, about his condition. And honestly, there were a lot of thoughts going through my brain and I was just continuing to pray for his life. Um, the ER nurse walked in and, you know, she said, he's sitting up and talking in the emergency room. And my response was, very loudly, I said, praise God. And that's when I started to cry. Because up to this point, I was very much, you know, uh, controlled. I'll put it that way. I was very serious in doing what I know God had called me to do. And uh, as we all know, the end of the story is not always what we desire. It may not have a happy ending. And I can certainly attest to that fact with my daughter, Rachel's death, because then it's, it really is in your face. It's like, you know, sometimes this happens, which isn't what you want, and sometimes this happens, which is what you want. Um, so I know with all my heart that God is completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom, and perfect in love. Those three still sovereignty, love, wisdom. We must trust God in all things for his glory and, and our good. Very good. And my prayer for all of you women, for myself, is just to continue to grow in our trust of God. Um, in those good times, it's easier. In the bad times, when it's harder. But um, he really is my strength in my weakness he is strong and I can tell you a blessing that God has given me through the experience of my my daughter's death is just to give me more of God's perspective from a heavenly perspective and being able to let go of this world easier and I'm very blessed to have that and I praise him for that. So anyway, uh, it was, thank you.
for the privilege to get to teach you through part of this. It's, you'll, you'll enjoy the book. Just wait until you get your hands on it and start reading it. Mm -hmm.